This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair Number 407, April the 13th, 1998. This evening we are going to do something a bit different and somewhat unusual. Instead of dealing with some current topic of interest, instead we're going to take the time to inform you of what Chalcedon hopes to do, would like to do, and hopes you will be happy to see us do. Now, before we get into Chalcedon's plans for the futures, let me uh, warn you not to accept it as a given fact that these are the things that will be accomplished simply because we've said so. It's going to take a lot of work and a lot of giving before any such thing is possible. I know that some years ago I mentioned on a tape something we hoped to do if the funds were forthcoming and I felt afterwards that perhaps it was a mistake because everyone was expecting it who never showed the least interest in giving it, uh, <laughs> but wanted it to be an accomplished fact. Well, our purpose is not merely to print articles about and to promote Christian Reconstruction, about bringing the world into obedience under God's law, and to using every means possible to make all things serve their Lord and Creator, their Savior. Well, that's a rather huge purpose, a total kind of purpose. A great many things need to be done to implement that talk is not enough. We have in the past year done publishing and writing, held conferences, gone to Zambia to further the work there, and have furthered it in every continent. But now we want to be very specific about what we have in mind. As a result, tonight, those of us here present will uh, discuss the matter, each stressing things that we particularly hope to see accomplished. With us tonight are Brian Abshire, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, and Susan Burns. I'm going to ask Brian as one of our two most recent staff members together with Susan to lead off and then Susan to follow and we would like your reaction to what we've said tonight and hopefully your support. Brian? Thank you Rush. I think the next challenge, the greatest challenge perhaps facing Chalcedon as an organization is how to translate the work that you have done over the past 35, 40 years 
into from an intellectual elite where you have given us the theological and the philosophical groundwork for reconstructing a civilization. And now I see the main task in, in front of us as taking those principles and applying them to creating a mass movement. My heart weeps every time I get letters in the mail or I talk with brothers and I see the kinds of churches they're in, the kinds of life decisions that Christians make. Their lives are messed up, their children are messed up, their marriages are messed up, their, their careers are messed up because they don't understand how God's law ought to affect them on a personal day-by-day -day level. And what happens is that they're, they're desperate, they're dying, literally, for the answers that, for example, the Institutes of Biblical Law uh, contains. But it takes a rare sort of individual who can go from a principle into an application. Not all men can do that. So what I would like to see Chalcedon do over the next 10 or 15 years is go from being an intellectual source, which I think we always need to be, but to becoming a mass movement. And that means to break God's law down into practical principles so that we can therefore influence not just a person here or a person there, but a whole church. I say it unabashedly. My goal in my life ministry is that every Arminian out there, I want to win to a consistent biblical worldview. Every person is an antinomian, but yet does claim the name of Christ. I want to bring them into our camp. I want to show them how their deepest longings and desires and their frustrations and problems have resolutions and have solutions inside God's law. And so therefore, we need to, I think, take the great work and continue to it, but the foundation has been laid, and now we need to start building a structure around it. I don't want to be critical or I don't want to be nasty when I say this, but Rush has given, I think, us tremendous works, and other people have taken his ideas and have built on them. And this is where it gets to be kind of cynical. I'm not always happy with what I see them doing with what Rush has done. And as I said, it is a difficult. It takes a certain kind of, I think, mentality, a certain kind of gift to go from a principle into an application. How do you actually break it down? And so my goal over the next 10 or 15 years, Lord willing, is to actually work to create practical methods of bringing these things around. Now, I'm not sure how much you want me to, to uh, go into detail at this particular yes. point. Several ways of doing it. One, Chalcedon needs to get behind a university system. We need to develop desperately an alternative to the present educational mess. We cannot keep sending our best and brightest young men to state accredited schools where they will learn all sorts of nonsense, where they will have their fine razor edge ground off by 10 to 12 years of incessant humanism. So therefore, we need to create an alternative. Now that's a multi-million dollar kind of deal, and there's no way that, that at least God hasn't shown he's going to give us those kinds of assets yet. So since the task needs to be done and we don't have the resources, we need to create an alternative educational system. And I think God has been very gracious because in the last 20 years, with the growth of the homeschool movement, for example, we have now a whole generation of young people who are grown up who have learned that they can get a better education outside of the traditional educational structure. Well, those kids are now 17, 18, 19 years old, and their parents are saying, look, we've protected them from humanism their whole lives. We've given them a Christian education. Now we want to send them into this citadel of Satan in a secular university and have them humiliated and have their faith attacked, why isn't there something that can continue on the basis? And sadly, Christian universities and colleges are often not much better than the secular institutions. They simply teach the same courses with a few Bible verses and an occasional prayer dropped in. I think the time is right for us to create an alternative educational opportunity. 
Three years ago, I proposed at uh, Russia's 80th birthday party uh, the concept of uh, an internet seminary. And since that time, the concept has grown is that people said, yes, we need a seminary to train our pastors, but we need a university to continue our children, a really good university. And using the power of computing and the internet, we can create a cost-effective alternative uh, to the traditional four years of grind, uh, paying professors to teach the same lectures over and over and over again. We have a way, a, a way of doing something different. A, as good an education, at least, if not a better education, uh, but people don't have to give up their jobs, their families, they don't have to come under the influence of other people, we can create a good alternative. And I think that's something that we desperately need to do. Now, it will take some financing to get it off the ground. That's the bad news. And it's, uh, but the good news is that once we get the mechanism up and running, I'm thinking from the cost analysis we've done, it should be self-supporting. So unlike these, because we're not building Ivy League buildings, we're not building, uh, you know, huge physical plants, we're not building sports arenas, we're not, uh, you know, building massive libraries. What happens is that people take advantage of the resources that are already there, they connect into the university through their internet connection on their computer, they download their lectures, and so you're not paying the staff to, you know, teach the same lecture over and over again. You're not uh, paying uh, somebody to keep up the grounds. It's nice to have those kinds of things if you've, if you've got the money, but we can afford to give people a cost-effective, excellent education, um, and, the pro and the system should make money for itself. And that's a, that's a project that is ready to go. All we need is basically the startup capital, and we can have the whole thing up and running within a year's time. And Brian, we've been discussing, you and I and Rush, about ways to raise money. We raised money last year for the Zambia trip, and uh, Rush was commenting at dinner earlier that uh, perhaps this year or next we need to work on creating perhaps uh, a sort of a subdivision of CalSeed for educational endeavors just like this to get seed money together. And I want to emphasize that CalSeed is preeminently an educational institution. And uh, I was talking with Mark, uh, I guess it was a couple months ago now, and he said, you know something that my father has wanted for 30 or 35 years, ever since CalSeed started, was a firm Christian, genuine Christian university as an alternative to the, the paganism and the compromising Christian, so-called Christian institutions around us. And I frankly think that Brian has just the idea to do that, and he's just the man that should be at the helm to, uh, to carry the ship, the Calcedon University ship onward. Others of us will help him, but I think he's got an outstanding idea for that. Brian, would you mind going into, and I, we don't take a lot of time here, but some of the specific matters that you would have mentioned a couple of years ago and some ways that we can accomplish this and the kind of courses that we could possibly offer? Well, that's, it's interesting that you should mention that, especially in connection with Zambia, Andrew, because the advantage of what we're doing here is that we put our entire university curriculum on an Internet server. And therefore, people not only in this country, but from all over the world can become a part of our institution. We don't have to build, for example, a full four-year Bible college in Zambia, which is going to cost us millions of dollars to pay for the staff and the land, and even if they give us the land, which they promise us to do. But instead, we can create a system, buy a guy a, a computer. He can connect to our system through the Internet, which they have in Zambia. There's no place in the world these days that, that's apart from the Internet. And therefore, we can actually train him in a consistent, comprehensive biblical worldview. What we do is really very simple. We uh, come up with our curriculum. What do we want to teach? What is it that a person ought to get out of a four-year uh, college education? 
Then we go out and find the right men and we hire them to teach the courses. Here's the good news. They teach the course one time. We pay it. This is a free market. We are free market people, right? We pay them a going market rate. We get their lectures. We take their lectures. And, and by the way, right now it's going to be audio tape. But within just a couple of years, we're going to be able to do full live video. I mean, that's, the technology is already there. It's not quite as cost effective as we want it to be. But we can certainly do this with audio tape. These are put on an internet server. People can then download that particular message in real time, by the way, as opposed to the old days when you used to download a sound file, and if it was a, an hour-long lecture, for example, it might take you two hours to download it. Well, now with uh, various technology, you can actually download it and listen to it at the same time and make a copy of it if you want to as well. So the individual has, we've paid a professor. He's written a course. He has course notes. He has a course examination. He has a reading list. Um, and he has uh, his lecture notes that are there in verbal, in verbal form, in audio form. The student can download it, listen to it. He can analyze it. He can listen to it again. He can do the required reading. He can write essays and papers. And then what we do, and this is one of the big scams, by the way, of, of most colleges and universities, and I don't mean to be nasty about it, but if, you, if you've ever been through one of these programs, you've noticed that the, your professor doesn't actually read too many of your papers. Usually there's a teaching assistant who reads your paper, which is basically one of your fellow students. Well, we can hire people to actually read these, that read the papers that people are doing. We c it could be the professor, for example. We can pay him on a, on a per-piece basis, right? This is part of his job. But the fact is, is that the student's tuition ought to be able to cover the cost of that. So he's getting a good education. Furthermore, we set up chat rooms. And there's a new thing now uh, where you can actually phone in from all over the world through the internet and talk in real time like you're talking on a telephone conference call. So you can get a small group discussion of four or five guys and it's the interaction, of course, that's one of the main benefits you get from a college education, the, the stimulating ideas, the, the sharpening, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, says scripture. Those are all good side benefits of a, of a college education. We can do that for people. We can provide that same thing. But they don't have to move 3,000 miles away. They don't have to uproot themselves. They don't have to try to find money to provide themselves an apartment and food. Hey, they can live at home. Wow, what an idea. They can get a job. Wow, isn't that tremendous? They can get a full four-year education that's extremely high quality for a fraction of the cost, and they can stay and be a part of their own church, their own family. They don't have to be separated away. Most parents recognize, Christian parents recognize, that their children are most at danger when they go away to university or college. That's when their kids pick up the rubbish that can set them back for years and years in their spiritual life and their dominion calling. Instead, we can develop a whole new system of it. Uh, we can go that all the way through. Now, there are a couple of ways that we can run it. For example, we might not be able to teach all the college courses that a person might want to take. If somebody, say, wanted to become an engineer, well, it's highly unlikely that we're going to be able to, at least initially, you know, hire someone to teach a full engineering course. But you know what? Engineering is a pretty safe subject. You can probably go down to your local four-year college and take your engineering courses because it doesn't change too much. It's the liberal arts courses you have to be careful of. So what Chalcedon University can do is say, okay, you want to do a degree in engineering? Fine, go to the University of California and take the courses that you want in engineering, but then we'll give you the first two years of your education in building a, cons a comprehensive, consistent biblical worldview. So now you can interpret this 
from a, a Christian perspective. So we can add things in. I mean, whatever a case may be. Somebody wanted to be, I don't know, an auto mechanic. I don't know. He can take courses wherever and transfer them in. There's a school in New York that does this. I think it's, is it Regents University uh, that does the same thing? They don't offer a single course themselves. They're just a collection house for other people bringing their courses in. Well, we can do them one better because we actually have a product that needs to be offered, and that is how to think biblically about the world. So we can do both things here. And furthermore, because there are a lot of homeschool kids, and they've already learned these things, homeschool kids are already in advance of the average college freshman. Kids 15, 16 years old have completed the first two years of work anyway. We can give them advanced credit for it, advanced standing. We can develop standardized tests. What's wrong with that? So our kids, rather than spending $40,000 and that's a minimum cost, uh, by the way, for an education, they could do it for $4,000. And meanwhile, they've saved time, they've saved money, and they've advanced. Um, and they've avoided the humanism they've of avoided the humanism. public education. I would think, too, Brian, that this is uh, <clears throat> going to be cost-effective not only for the people buying the product, but for those of us at CalSeed offering the product, because there's very little overhead here. Yes, exactly, because we don't have to have you know, classroom space for this. We don't have to have uh, huge buildings. We don't have to maintain a large library. All we have to do is get the professors to develop the lecture and basically pay someone to maintain the system. And, and basically you have a computer geek, you know, and I know plenty of them, uh, to ed run the administration part of it as well as make sure the computer and connections are up and running and that sort of thing is going. People can call in 24 hours a day. There's no reason why our brothers and sisters in Australia or Indonesia or uh, Hong Kong or Africa, why they shouldn't be able to, to, to come into the system whenever it fits their purposes to do so. Download what they need and go out. The other thing that we can do, this is wonderful technology. It's here. I mean, in fact, you can buy it all over the place. But we can come up with your four-year Calcedon University, these are the books, the classic books that you need to get into your head. We can buy those books, buy the rights of them, a lot of them in public domain. Put them on one CD-ROM. And that book then, I mean, that CD-ROM contains an entire library of good reference materials. And they get that as a part of it. For example, maybe some of Russia's books or some of the stuff that we've written. But classic books, classic theology, classic history, things like uh, that you can't just get anymore. And so therefore, a person is not only getting an education, but he's getting a library. All right, granted. Everyone knows reading a book on computer is not the easiest thing to do. Okay, so maybe it costs you $2.50 to print the stupid book off on your printer. But you've got then a real hardbound book that you can use for the rest of your life. And the information is always there. And furthermore, think about what this means for brothers in persecuted countries. They can swap the files back and forth. They can educate each other. They're not just dependent upon the brave guys like Peter, uh, <coughs> Peter Hammond, Peter Hammond or, or Brother Andrew or these other guys that you know were risking life and limb to, to sneak a few precious books across the border. Man, on one CD-ROM, we can give them an entire reformed theological library. Brian, it seems to me that this could be a means of educating an entire generation of Christian Reconstructionists, and this should be especially attractive to homeschoolers. Uh, most of them don't want to send their children off to pagan schools, or virtually all of them, not one of them would. Um, but I think if we implement this program, this could be the means of 
or serve as the engine of the mass movement that you talked about earlier, exactly. because this can disseminate our vision very widely and very quickly. To lots and lots of people. People who are homeschoolers but may not necessarily be reconstructionist or even reform. They're looking for a good alternative. We can give it to them. This is something that I think Christians need to get, come to grips with, and people in our camp. I got, I got a lot of friends who've got masters who are working on their doctorates, and they're Reconstructionists. They have a real heart and a vision for seeing Christian civilization restored. But sometimes they don't realize that after they spent all that time and all that energy getting that degree from that impeccable, accredited academic institution, no one's ever going to hire them. Christian colleges and universities and seminaries don't want them. In the secular world with a politically correct crowd and the, the rabid feminists and all that kind of stuff, they can't pass through. If they do manage to get a job, they won't get tenure. They won't stay there very long. Right. We have got to create a parallel institution. It is stupid to send our best and brightest into Caesar schools and expect them to come out untouched. Yes. Very good, Brian. I agree with everything you said. Although I would uh, like to correct you at one point when you said we don't need those big, beautiful libraries. Oh, yes, we do, yes. <laughs> now, one of our problems is that so many of the best books are disappearing. Yes. And I know one scholar who doesn't share my point of view hunted for a long time for one particular book published about 125 years ago, and he was searching for it in the late 40s of this century. He finally found one copy alone in the entire United States. That's what's happening. Mm -hmm. A great many excellent works are disappearing. And it does no good to donate uh, very fine books to uh, public libraries. I know <laughs> some years ago when my By What Standard appeared, this uh, one very zealous woman, a very fine woman, got half a dozen copies and donated them to public libraries and later discovered that if uh, those copies did not circulate more than so many times in a year, they were disposed of. Mm -hmm. And uh, a great many wonderful books are disappearing, so we do need to accumulate a library. And I believe this is an essential part of our uh, responsibility to the future. Rush, what I was going to say is that we take those great, rare, precious books we digitize them, put them in electronic format, and we can disseminate them. And, I, yes. and I, that's what I'm talking about. I, know. In terms I understand, of, yeah. but I didn't want okay. anyone to get the wrong impression. Okay. Susan, would you like to add your observations to this and uh, speak about uh, what we are doing with the underwriters and how helpful that is? I, I have a very distinct privilege in being able to um, be on the phone with people and to hear what they're doing, what they're thinking, and reading the underwriter surveys. And um, um, I'm just really impressed at the number of people who are in such complete agreement 
with Chalcedon and the ministry of Chalcedon who share the vision that uh, that we express. They often want to know, well, when is that university going to come? And that seminary, when is it going to be? They're waiting for it. Um, the people that I talk to are more willing, um, there's such a complete openness and willingness to really rethink everything from a biblical perspective. They are really, they have abandoned um, the secular culture, they want to rebuild a Christian culture and they are looking for instruction on how to do it. They want, they want their children to be active in the next generation. Um, they, they have sought to train their children. Now there's a whole generation coming up that is college age and the parents are having to struggle with what do they do with their children and right now um, they are, there's, there are not a lot of opportunities. And um, in many cases, the children, I think, are staying home and just continuing their education with their parents. Some of the um, writers that we have been reading in the Chalcedon Report are young children who have better thought skills at 17, 12, 17, 16, than I had at 25, 26 after uh, decades of uh, state education, we have so much potential out there and we have so many people who are behind us and who are really waiting for Chalcedon to, um, to give the leadership and the direction uh, for the next generation. It's a very exciting time and I want us to do it all. I can't think of anything, any ideas that are tossed out that I don't think or I, I just want to see us do it all and I think that um, 30 years from now when we do another um, easy chair, it will be interesting to look back on tonight and see what of the goals that we have as a ministry that God has allowed us to accomplish. One thing that excites me about Calcedon is that we have now a core of people who share Rush's vision and who are themselves visionaries. And uh, like Susan, want to do everything. Well, we may not be able to accomplish everything, but I like the old adage, blessed are they who aim at nothing, for they will surely hit it. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> we, uh, we have uh, objectives that we want to accomplish, and we're going to be talking about them, and, and by God's grace, and as Rush has pointed out, with your support, uh, some of them, and we hope one day all of them, can in fact uh, be accomplished. I want to encourage those of you who are not on our underwriters list to join, please, because our future does require that we have uh, steady support. It's difficult when, as in a recent year, one month you get about $130,000, and then uh, a couple of months you're down to twenty-eight by no means uh, more than uh, halfway uh, adequate to carry on our work. And uh, those of you who are becoming underwriters are beginning to enable us to have a stable financial basis. And. Uh Mark is not here tonight. He's away with a school at a science camp, but he, I think he pointed out in a recent article 
in the Calcedon report held that some of the things we've been doing the last couple of years, the publication of some of the monographs and conferences, simply would not have been possible apart from the support of the underwriters. So if we can maintain our present underwriters and we can gain new underwriters, I think that we're going to be able to accomplish a number of things that we'll be talking about tonight. Yes, we do need to have a consistent and ongoing support in order to be able to plan intelligently for the future. And uh, that's why what uh, Susan spoke of, the underwriters, uh, represents so important a fact. We are more grateful to you than we can begin to express because it does provide us with a growing basis, a foundation that we can count on month in and month out. Now, there is a great deal more that we are going to discuss. As we continue, Douglas, would you like to add to what has been said or ask a question of Brian about what he has said? Well, I would just comment that uh, many commentators on the computer uh, phenomenon have uh, made the prediction that computers are currently rendering governments irrelevant. And I would predict that the, and I'm, I don't know if I'm coining a new term here or not, but the cyberversity, which is a mm -hmm. university in cyberspace, uh, will render the present uh, government-run education system irrelevant. Uh, the economics of the cyberversity are so irresistible that it's an idea that has to go forward. It has to succeed. Uh, governments are out of money. They're deeply in debt. Uh, those that think they have it are uh, hopelessly in debt. Those that don't have it are looking for ways of improving their internal education systems at minimal cost. So the economics of the cyberversity are going to be irresistible, and that will push it uh, harder than anything else, and it will push it worldwide. So I think you've got to... I mean, the implications here are enormous. That's a very important point, Douglas, because recently I saw something put out by one church on the money it needed to maintain its college and seminary system. It was staggering. At the same time, there's been a great deal on television about the needs here in the state uh, for vast sums of funding uh, to maintain the public educational system so that uh, I would say the traditional forms of schooling are beginning to price themselves out of the market. Well, just in this county, as an indication, uh, one of the supervisors had the auditor controller, the county auditor controller, so the, these are official figures, they're not something that somebody with an agenda, a hidden agenda, put together, that education in this county consumes ten times all of the other governmental functions combined. Mm, nice. And we have to assume that this is not an isolated circumstance. 
This is probably repeated, I'm sure, throughout California. Uh, they ha we have a bond issue that's going to be voted on yes. uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact, in this county, and everybody I talk to is going to vote against it. Uh, there's been uh, heavy lobbying trying to push it through, but people are, uh, that I've talked to are voting against it, not because they want to deprive children of the education, but it's the kind of education. Mm -hmm. uh, people that are pushing these agendas, you know, for public education are not asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. They're trying to sell it on the basis you cannot deprive your children of the public facilities for uh, public education. But people are rebelling. It's the only means they have left of rebelling against the, the humanism and the destructive kind of education that they're getting in the public sector. And the only thing they, that, that they have left is to vote against bond issues for any more facilities for public education. And there have been the last three or four in this county have failed, and they're failing in county after county throughout this state. And the educators, curiously enough, are dumbfounded because they feel that people are cutting off the next generation. But they're not asking the right questions. You know, why are you doing this to us? You know, they feel that they're being unjustly punished by not uh, passing these bond issues. And people are just very quietly going to the polls, picking the no lever, and waiting for them to ask the right questions. It's the substance of the education that is the crooks of it. And people are starting to figure it out all over this country that their kids not only are being shortchanged, uh, they're being put into dangerous environments uh, and uh, intellectually destructive environment. So uh, the average guy on the street starting to figure it out. So the cyberversity uh, answers a lot of need for them. They don't have to buy their kid an expensive bulletproof vest to <laughs> attend grammar school. Uh, they don't have to uh, go through a severe time juggling uh, act to try to uh, t uh, carry their kids to school and still try to get to work on time uh, in both inclement weather and so forth. And I think it will help in uh, many households, will uh, help uh, the mothers stay home and teach their kids. It will encourage them to. And I, uh, I mean that alone is, uh, is one of those implications which has yes. great, great merit. Very good. Andrew? <clears throat> Russia, a few weeks ago, uh, Mark Rashtuni asked me to devise a, a vision statement um, about Calcedon's future to propose at the, at the uh, board meeting this summer. I'm not going to read that vision statement, but I think it'll be the foundation for how we continue on Calcedon's work. Calcedon has been around now over 30 years, and uh, moving toward 35 now. Chalcedon is dedicated to the historic Orthodox Christian faith, but not only the faith intellectually, but applying that faith in all areas of life. We're dedicated to individual liberty. In fact, as Rush has pointed out in his book, Foundations of Social Order, the uh, 
the Chalcedon situation, the Chalcedon Creed, was hammered out for precisely that purpose. I think there are two ways that we can, we can do this as a, as a foundation. And Brian has already talked about the, the second one. The first is to refute all non-Christian and anti-Christian systems and forms of thought. And in addition to that, to demonstrate that the Christian system of thought is the only intellectually possible system of thought. It is the only anchor for all of life. And of course, Rush's works and other Chalcedon works, but especially Rush's works, have demonstrated that very effectively. And that's one reason that we want to keep all of those in print. In fact, I think now probably Ross House has in print more of Rush's books than at any time in Chalcedon's history. Uh, we thank God for that, and with your help, we want to get more and more of them back into print. But in addition to that intellectual side, which is absolutely essential, we've got to do what Brian Abshire has pointed out, and that is instruct Christians in how to apply these things in their everyday lives. First of all, in their individual lives. Second, in families third in churches, fourth in schools, and in business, and economics, and of course also in the state. The entire goal in doing all of this is to reconstruct society on a, an explicitly biblical basis and restore a Christian culture, a Christian civilization. In fact, um, on about, well I guess it's a couple of weeks now, Brian Abshire, pastor of Reformed Heritage Church will be hosting a special one-day Chalcedon conference in Modesto on that topic of restoring Christian civilization. That's what Chalcedon is all about. Um, we do this on an explicitly Vantillian basis. Russia's ministry has been greatly shaped by the works of Cornelius Van Til and his theology, his theory of knowledge, which we call his epistemology, and his apologetic method, uncompromising. That is the only thing that is going to keep us from falling into error. So many other organizations, Christian organizations, churches and denominations, compromise the faith because they're not sufficiently presuppositional. That is, they do not take the Christian faith and the Bible as the absolute starting point, but want to have some area of neutrality uh, with unbelievers. But of course that's an impossibility. As Van Til pointed out, we have to believe the Bible and presuppose the Bible to know anything at all. And that, of course, is, is Chalcedon's, um, Chalcedon's dedicated to that and will continue to be dedicated to that. Now, some of the things that we want to do short term in the next year or so are to produce more monographs. We already have some of them out. These are the shorter writings uh, to go along with the longer scholarly writings. And you see here we're, we're hitting both sides here. We'll have the longer scholarly writings but also the shorter ones, as Brian was talking about, to, to hit on those very important practical issues that help people in their lives. Which and also still serve as an introduction to the broader issues. Absolutely. The more intellectual issues, yeah. You know, in doing this, Brian, what we're able to do is we're able to, we're able to be more comprehensive, I think, than ever. Uh, we hope by the time you receive this tape that Brian Abshire's monograph will be out, and that is uh, The Church is God's Armory. Um, outstanding uh, biblical advice, suggestions about maintaining, uh, about the church's proper role, biblical role in society. The church is in a terrible condition. And uh, 
Brian's manuscript demonstrates how we can get out of it. Just very practical. Theologically sound, don't misunderstand, but very practical points that ministers and elders can read and can make changes in their church right away. He's also got a couple of others on relational theonomy, dealing with our brothers, reconstructing the family, and, and a host of others that, God willing, we'll be able to do in the future. We're also wanting to do a shorter work on God's law, the foundation of Christian culture, uh, a, a shorter work of mine on the coherence of gospel and law. Steve Schlissel, uh, who's doing some outstanding work on the covenant. We're wanting to publish some of his works. Uh, the necessity of maintaining literal six-day creation, and on and on we could we could uh, address that. In fact, we, we would like to put out, I think Mark and I were talking recently, we'd like to put out 50 or 60 of these titles the next few years. And I believe that we can do that. As far as somewhat longer works, uh, <clears throat> one uh, work that Colonel Doner and, and Brian were talking about recently when we were eating is, is a book on biblical masculinity. Uh, I think that's a, a vital topic. Uh, as well as a book uh, Colonel and I are working on in a manifesto of Christian society. And uh, in addition to that, study guides for Cal Seed and Ross House books. And uh, Brian Abshire will be working, we hope, on a manual for implementing practical reconstruction in daily life. I've seen some of his work on that, and it's just, just really good. In addition to that, uh, Brian and Mark and Rush and I are working on a Cal Seed and lecture series we'll be delivering here beginning in June on the infallibility, interpretation, and study of the Bible. This is a sort of scholarly book that can be used in seminaries, Christian seminaries, uh, not only seminaries, but, uh, but any sincere, literate Christians, anywhere. After this one, Rush suggested uh, we address the topic of the atonement, another central doctrine of the faith that unfortunately is just being abandoned, even among evangelicals who don't really understand it, have rather sentimental views of the atonement. And then there's a, a collection of essays I'm wanting to put out on guarding the faith, maintaining historic Christianity in the modern world, and Brian and I will be working together with Rush probably on the title Restoring Christian Civilization. We talked about that, and I could go on and on and on with respect to the book titles uh, that, we, that we want to do. But in, in talking about what I discussed earlier, this two-pronged attack, if we publish the monographs and the books, we're going to be able to really hit on all four cylinders and influence people in all areas of life, the scholarly works and also the more popular works. Andrew, I get calls all the time from men who say to me, I want to teach a Bible study. I've got a group of men in my church. Where do I go? Uh, I've got some guys that are maybe in this uh, business associates who are all Christians, and we want to look at these things, but I can't give them the institutes to read. I mean, it just, it, it, it frightens them. They're not ready for that. They're not ready for the meat because they haven't had the milk. The monographs that you're editing fit that niche perfectly. And will introduce them to the other, exactly. the other works. Yes, that's, that's precisely correct. And they're written so that, that housewives can read them, and high school students, and college students, and we'll get later, to, uh, Brian, to talking about college ministries and so forth. But Chalcedon really is, if you'll excuse the expression, an idea center, an idea factory. And that's how we've influenced people over the years, and that's how we intend to influence them. What we can really do is have an even more comprehensive approach than ever. And Brian, I think that's one thing that you are really going to make a, a, a contribution in, really extending that not only the scholarly side is essential though that is, and we will always be that by God's grace, but also applying those scholarly things in everyday life so that people can reach them and, and apply the faith and, and exercise practical reconstruction and the reconstructive task.
Well, we can go on from there, and Brian, maybe we can discuss some things. Rush, if you don't mind, there are a couple of other things that we wrote down here that perhaps we Very good. One thing that Brian has been wanting to do is, is influence churches, and, and I think one way to do that is holding elders conferences. Exactly. The idea is that if you, if you publish a hundred books, you have to have a hundred people read those books, and you've, uh, you've influenced a hundred people. Well, okay, good. You sold a hundred books, you've influenced a hundred people. But if you get one pastor, and you get a hold of his heart, and you get a hold of his head, you've influenced his entire church. And so what we'd like to do, and starting this year, in fact, this is one of the reasons why I moved to California and, uh, in the first place, is to be able to work closely with Andrew and, and Mark and Rush, is that we want to have conferences designed specifically for elders, both ruling elders or teaching elders or whatever, teaching them how the Word of God applies to their very practical situations, how they can bring reformation and reconstruction to their churches. I know these guys are all over the country. In, in, in my own church, uh, my own denomination, we have a lot of guys that, that love God's law. But because of the situations they're in, they have to keep a low profile. They, they want to bring their people along, but they don't know quite how to do it. Well, we've got a good collection of men here who have some, some real practical wisdom. So we're going to teach them how to bring reformation to their churches, how to do it gently and lovingly, how, without it blowing up in their faces like a landmine but so they can start moving people along. It's very, very hard. Not everyone is called to be a John Knox and face down, uh, you know, the queen and, uh, you know, survive it. Not everyone's called to be a John the Baptist and face down Herod and get his head chopped off. Not everyone's called to be a Paul or a Peter and face down Caesar and be executed for it. Some men are supposed to be shepherds and pastors. They need to learn how they can change and transform their churches. The elders' conferences will run these heck, three, four, five times a year. And uh, we'll bring people in for two days during the week. After all, pastors only work one day of the week, so they could, they could come during Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, we'll have an intensive time of practical application. Again, emphasis on taking the great theoretical foundation and then showing men how it actually works in their churches. We'll pump them up, give them encouragement, let them know people love them and encourage them, and then send them back into their churches. And you know, this is really a means, as you mentioned earlier, of influencing a large number of people with, with relatively little investment. Because if we're able to influence pastors, yes. and they're able to influence their flocks, this is another means, along with the internet, uh, the Cal State University <coughs> and Seminary idea, of getting our ideas disseminated very quickly and influencing society. And if they take those practical truths, the pastors take them, if they teach them in the church, and the church members take them, and then we get a sort of a snowball effect. More and more pastors get involved in more and more churches. We're going to have a huge effect. And there are churches out there right now. You know, one thing I wanted to mention about churches, we do have some support within some of the standard mainline Reformed denominations, but frankly, Chalcedon's support among churches basically is among the independent churches, yes. or churches only marginally associated with other churches. And many of them are just crying out for the, for the Orthodox faith and for for Christian Reconstruction and what Chalcedon is teaching. And I think, Brian, what you're talking about is just perfectly suited for churches like that. Others have denominational programs and they may look down on us. Now, we would like you to get involved if you're like that and you're listening, but, but the point is the, the more independent churches of various Orthodox denominations are, are, are committed to learning more about Chalcedon and applying the faith, and I think these are just an ideal way to do that. Well, Reformed people might not like to admit it, 
but the fastest growing segment of the Christian community are charismatics. You can, you can criticize them all you want, you can criticize their theology, but they are out there doing things. If we can influence them, if we can help to show them how the Bible relates, how it fits together for them, and a lot of these people are, are aching for it. They've, they've had their experiences, they've had their, 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 their big emotional kinds of things, and now they're saying there must be more to that. These are some of the most motivated, sincere, and dedicated Christians I know. Now, obviously, theologically, I've got some problems with where most charismatics are at, but this is a method and a mechanism for taking these brothers and ministering to them, instead of just slamming them because they may not have all of right. their, their crosses you know, dotted and, and all that sort of thing. Instead, what we can do is we can minister to them. We can have an influence there and the mechanism. Guys like you, Andrew, will be producing the heavyweight artillery. Guys like me will be, will be showing them how that artillery applies to their situation. And you know, the ones that I've been exposed to, charismatics and others, uh, they have been so open to the truth. Exactly. You know, it's interesting, Rush. I, <clears throat> I talk with, with one of these men now, is firmly reformed. Um, he said, do you want me to tell you the reason that we're dedicated to Chalcedon and Christian Reconstruction? Twenty years ago, when our church was a flaming charismatic church, we invited R.J. Rastuni to come. He didn't poke fun at us. He didn't look down on us. He simply spoke the truth very quietly but firmly. And because of that, we listened to him and we've become reformed today. One thing that Rush has taught us is you never win anybody over by spitting in their face. And we've won an entire generation, or not an entire generation, but a large part of the generation of charismatics over to the reformed faith just by following that method. And we want to be friends to all Orthodox churches and Orthodox individuals who want to know more about the faith and applying the faith. And Brian, just what you're talking about is, is a vehicle for doing that. Exactly. Similar war story. In Wisconsin, my last church, we used to run citywide biblical counseling seminars for pastors. How, basically teaching pastors how to apply the Word of God to real-life problem situations. Three-quarters of the people who came to those seminars were charismatics. My Reformed Presbyterian brothers could not be bothered to make the time available, even if, when I asked them to come and help teach it, because they've got the right theology, the theology of sanctification, the Reformed doctrine of sanctification, weren't interested, didn't want to get involved, don't want to do that. The people who wanted it uh, and so God brought the people that he wanted to, to be there, and we were able to minister to those folks. I have a couple of those guys that are still good friends of mine. And, you know, when I slip them a Chalcedon report or I give them a monograph, they're interested, they're reading it, and they're asking for more. We can do this. We have a responsibility to do it. Yes. One thing that's always impressed me about uh, Chalcedon, and if you've ever read the back of the Chalcedon report on our ministry statement, it says, we exist to serve all Orthodox churches and denominations. And for that reason, we've been able to have a huge influence uh, beyond the Reformed community. Now, everybody at Chalcedon uh, is, is thoroughly Reformed, and nobody at Chalcedon is, is charismatic. However, we're open to all those who want to hear the truth, and we want to influence those. Another thing, taking a step beyond this, is, is various groups of churches, not necessarily starting a new denomination per se, but alliances of churches who can get together and this, no doubt, would be the result of elders' conferences. But churches I know of that want to get together to do projects, like-minded churches influenced by Chalcedon. It's amazing how we can have a snowball effect if we can just influence individuals, and particularly pastors and churches. Well, I'd like to take a minute or two to call attention to something that is 
very commonplace today. Books are being written or articles, uh, the titles of which or the subjects are such things as the death of money, the death of politics, the death of the church, the death of this, that, and the other thing. In other words, more than a few people seeing the end of the road for everything that is commonplace in our culture, in our civilization. And there is a great deal of truth to their perspective because we are approaching a time like the late Middle Ages when the medieval synthesis collapsed or earlier when the Roman Empire collapsed. Nobody felt when uh, a few thousands of barbarians, as William Carroll Bark pointed out, crossed the borders and started pillaging the Roman Empire because the millions of Rome did not think Rome was worth defending. Hmm. And so a few 10,000 barbarians walked at will through most of the empire. More and more people in our civilization don't feel it's worth defending. That poses a major problem. Well, the problem is not going to go away because we go on doing the same thing day after day. An interesting article in a major uh, weekly uh, recently called attention to the fact that the uh, massive propaganda an educational campaign against drugs in uh, the public schools and via television has accomplished nothing. Hmm. In fact, the program seems to be attended by an increase in drug use. So it's having a negative impact. But they don't know what else to do but to go on doing the same kind of thing. So the answers our culture is providing in one area after another are being shown to be impotent, but they're the only answers they want to give. <laughs> well, the solution has to be a radically different one, a Christian one. One uh, scholar told me recently that uh, he believed that the coming economic collapse was going to be different from 1929. It was not going to be just uh, an economic depression. It was going to be the beginning of a growing collapse of everything our civilization believes in. That we would have to come out of it, perhaps in 50 or 100 years, with a totally different perspective a different kind of uh, world, different priorities, a faith that relates to these problems in a very, very emphatically different way. Thank you very much for listening. We will continue with this subject in Easy Chair 408.